Thanks, everybody. Um, yeah, as I said, uh, recently graduated just in May, uh, and this was sort of my uh, fun project to take up for the summer afterward, um, which I'll be developing over the next year or so, primarily through oral history interviews. Uh, so it deals with a lot of things that are fairly recent, all the way up to 2020, uh, and so probably there's people here who might know some of the characters involved. Um, anyway, so um, I'm going to be one of those folks who reads off the sheet, though, because I... I have trouble with going over time as well. <laughs> okay. Um, Montana rock climbing has a reputation for obscurity. Uh, just this summer, Climbing Magazine ran a story uh, with the headline, Montana has granite the size of a half dome. Why don't you know about it? Uh, in which the author reaffirmed and celebrated the unique difficulties of finding reliable information on climbing routes in the state. In 2017, climbing advocacy, advocacy group, The Access Fund, ranked the Montana publishing debate number two on their list of top ten thorniest ethical debates in American climbing. Uh, the top comment on the Montana homepage of the online guidebook Mountain Project states, why is it that folks are so secretive about climbing in Montana? Oh, secretive spelled wrong there. Uh, scroll down through the comments and you'll find mention of something referred to as the do not publish ethic, along with others uh, replying that no such ethic exists or that it vanished long ago. Anyone new to the state, like myself, who has attempted to find information on rock climbing routes can attest to the lack of easily accessible information about the various cliffs and crags in Montana. But is that the result of an ethical principle consciously implemented? And if so, why is that? Uh, that's something I've been asking since I first started climbing here a couple years ago. Um, some climbers insist that there just isn't any rock worth writing about in Montana. You can look out that direction to know that's wrong. Um, uh, others see that, it's a, that, see that as a clever smokescreen for deterring outsiders. Um, some say that secrecy preserves a certain form of wilderness and prevents overcrowding. Still others will complain that the tight-lipped are merely dressing up their selfishness in moral language. Others say that the relatively small and close-knit climate community doesn't really need anything written down. Um, and others obviously disagree with that. Uh, I think there's some truth to each of those accounts and that each has some bearing on the present uh, state of the unique climbing uh, subculture in Montana, um, which I'll try to place in some historical context today. Um, all right. So uh, while people have been ascending peaks and climbing rock walls for millennia, um, uh, this quote here actually I wanted to put, that some of the boldest efforts in climbing are never recorded. They exist for a time as oral tradition and then are lost forever. Who knows what they could reveal of man's struggle against the mountains and against himself. Chris Jones said that in 1976, um, and there's been some effort since then to keep a better record of these things, but not everywhere. Uh, anyway, so yeah, while people have been climbing walls for millennia, technical rock climbing as we know it today is a fairly recent development, and as such, many of the original pioneers in North American rock climbing, or those who knew them or learned from them personally, are still around to be, uh, to be interviewed and tell their stories. So over the past six months, I've been sitting down with various Montana climbing pioneers to talk about their ascents and the development of the Treasure State's unique climbing culture. Uh, from what I've learned, I'll be presenting a brief overview of climbing history in the state from the earliest ascents to the present day with an emphasis on this culture of obscurity. But I should start by acknowledging uh, that prior to the arrival of white settlers, numerous uh, sorry, members of, of all the tribes in, in this area um, climbed these peaks, not always even by the shortest or easiest route. Um, and uh, so there's an example here of uh, a Vision Quest site, a Blackfeet Vision Quest site in the Badger Two Medicine area. Um, there's Vision Quest sites from the Crow all throughout the Crazy Mountains and, and other places as well. Um, Sailor sites in the Bitterroot, Kootenai sites in the Mission Mountains, just to name a few. Um, the first, uh, however, we can call a modern mountaineer uh, in Montana was James Willard Schultz. Uh, he was led into the mountains by the Pecan Blackfoot, who called him Apikuni. Uh, his 
account of a climb up Chief Mountain uh, was published in the magazine Forest and Stream, uh, catching the attention of the magazine's editor, George Bert Grinnell, uh, who seen the, there on the, I think that's Grinnell there. Um, Anyway, uh, in 1883. Grinnell then came out to Glacier in 1885 uh, to climb with uh, the mountains and hunt with Schultz. Grinnell went on to promote tours and advocate for protection of Glacier National Park, leading glacier walking trips such as these seen here, uh, and summit trips for visitors all the way into the 1920s. Uh, these early mountaineers, though, t they tended to focus on reaching summits and often by the simplest, uh, shortest, or easiest just route, right? the least danger involved while still achieving that pinnacle. Uh, the next generation of climbers, utilizing techniques that were developed, uh, I got some more photos of Grinnell's tours there, uh, developed in the Alps and by Glen Exum and the Exum Mountain School and the Teton Range, uh, began to seek out more technical ridges and faces to climb in the 1930s. In general, mountaineers recorded uh, first ascents of major faces on ridge or uh, prominent ridges, named their routes after either the first ascent party or the cardinal direction of the face or ridge. And those are recorded in the American Alpine Journal or the British magazine Mountain. Um, technical climbing on vertical rock faces, however, for its own sake, uh, really took off throughout the country following World War II. With military surplus equipment and training expanding the realm of possibility uh, for climbers, veterans of the 10th Mountain Division utilized the skills they'd learned scouting and fighting in the Alps and in Korea uh, to conquer big walls in the Rockies, Cascades, and Sierra Nevada. In Bozeman, a veteran of the Army Chemical Lab named Bob Witters followed his chemistry professor, Ed Anaker, up rock routes uh, in the Madison and Absaroka ranges throughout the 1950s. This is from one of Anaker's ascents. Anaker's behind the camera in this one, though. Um, uh, often, uh, those climbs are completed without a rope, and occasionally uh, they thought would find traces of previous undocumented ascents uh, out there, pitons left in the rock and things of that nature. Um, in Missoula, a group of high school students, which included George Bauer, purchased, quote, this is a quote from George Bauer, everything that the 10th Mountain Division had left behind, end quote, and started to find their way up the Bitterroot Peaks in the early spring of 1963. Uh, Jay Gordon Edwards, who had served as a combat medic during World War II, started a career as a naturalist for the Park Service after the war, pioneering new routes in order to study insects on the high ledges of Glacier National Park. Um, in 1961, he published uh, the first edition of, of this book here, which is still quite popular. It's a climber's guide to glacier. Um, National Park. Um, another returning serviceman who took to the mountains was uh, Hal Kanzler of Columbia Falls, Montana. In the 1960s, Hal took his preteen sons, Jim and Jerry, up cutting edge routes in Glacier National Park, teaching them to use ropes and pitons for protection and direct aid uh, when necessary. After moving to Butte to work for the, for the mines there, uh, uh, and the boys, the Jim and Jerry Kanzler, met uh, other climbers and formed an informal association known as the Wool Socks Club they named after the socks they all wore. There's the group of them there. Um, this is the last known photo of the Wool Socks Club that was developed posthumously, I'll get to that. Um, the Wool Socks Club consisted of Jim Kanzler, Jerry Kanzler, Claire Pograba, uh, Ray Martin, and Barry Frost, and Bill Antonioli. In uh, 1967 to 69, the club spent as much time as they could out at Spire Rock in the Pipestone Valley and in the Humbug Spires, which are south of Butte here. Um, in 1967, then 18-year-old Jim Kanzler, at the behest of his father, wrote up an article describing their adventures in the Humbug Spires and sent it into Summit Magazine, which was the premier American mountaineering publication of the time. The article was met with some hostility from Butte climbers and hunters who feared that the publicity would disturb their previously unknown wilderness getaway. Ed Laritz of Butte later stated of the article, quote, 
Why would anyone want to invite the whole world into our little utopia? None of us would give Jim any specific information, and in fact, we shunned him for a while. <laughs> this, to my knowledge, is sort of the first instance of this debate uh, rearing up over whether or not it's proper to publicize climbing destinations in Montana. The article did not result really in any increase in climbing activity that any of the people at that time know, uh, and it's still pretty rare to run into another climbing party in the Humbugs, even today. Um, 19, although it gets climbed about once or twice a week, some of the routes out there, but uh, in the summer. Uh, okay, so the years 1968 to 71 were significant years in the development of Montana's climbing culture, as uh, Pat Callis, who taught chemistry at Montana State, uh, here's, that's actually him on the cover of Chenard's Climbing Ice book, although he's not credited. Um, and uh, Gray Thompson, who taught geology at the University of Montana, both brought cutting-edge climbing techniques and world-class experience with them to their new posts. Uh, before coming to Bozeman, Pat Callis had put up some of the first 510 climbs in the country, it's difficult, most difficult rating of the time, at a place called Takis Rock near Palm Springs. He had also accompanied Warren Harding, not the president, the rock climber, uh, on the west face of the Lost Aerospire, pictured there, and, uh, and joined Fred Becky, Galen Rowell, and Galen Rowell on the first ascent of the northwest face of the Great White Throne in Zion National Park. That's another picture there. Um, Dr. Callis is also an early adopter of bolt-protected climbing. This is actually one of his old bolt kits that he had in the 50s. Um, uh, having learned how to drill bolts in Oregon's Menagerie Wilderness in the 1950s. Three-eighth-inch expansion bolts and steel hanger plates allowed climbers to venture out onto steep sections of rock that lacked the tracks for chocks and pitons. Um, I'm going to not get too bogged down in gear, but happy to discuss it with the folks afterwards if you want. Um, when uh, Callis took up a post at MSU in 1968, he quickly stepped into a mentor role for Bozeman's young climbers. He was given the name, uh, nickname of Gandalf by the Wool Sox Club, several of whom had started up at MSU at that point. Um, Gray Thompson, who, uh, oh, sorry, there's some more examples of gears, some hexcentrics. These are used for chalking into cracks. Um, hand tied, and if you didn't tighten your knots, they would tighten themselves in a fall, which could really lengthen the fall and maybe even come untied in a fall. There's some stories of that uh, happening. Uh, this is Gray. Probably the favorite thing I've done this summer was his befriend, this guy. Um, really great guy. Uh, so, Gray Thompson. Um, was a member of the Dartmouth Mountaineering Club and had been on uh, the 1967 ascents of Mount Logan and the south face of Denali. Uh, while working on his PhD at the Sorbonne in Paris, Gray was one of the first Americans to, was on the first American team to climb the north face of the Matterhorn. Dr. Thompson accepted an interim position in the mineralogy lab at the University of Montana in 1969 and immediately started putting up new routes in the Bitterroot Mountains with a handful of climbers living in Missoula at the time and climbers such as Fred Becky who had passed through. Um, in 1969, it's also the final year of the Wool Sox Club. Oh, there's more. There's Gray on the Denali. Um, all right. Final year of the Wool Sox Club, as the core members were killed in an avalanche on Mount Cleveland, the highest peak in Glacier National Park. Jim Kanzler and Pat Callis, who decided not to join, as did Bob Lambeth, father of my former office mate at UM, who was invited on the trip, but his mom wouldn't let him go. Um, when the, uh, they, they didn't join, but they were part of the search party later. Um, when the boys didn't return, uh, they were, uh, several search parties were dispatched. Callis eventually found one of their backpacks, partially buried in the debris of a recent avalanche. So that photo earlier was developed from. Uh, the Mount Cleveland tragedy dissuaded some and inspired others to pursue their sport all the more voraciously. Jim Kanzler and Peter Lev, who ran the ski patrol at Big Sky, went on to develop the first avalanche safety course in the US. 
a younger friend of the Kanzlers named Terry Kennedy, who's seen on that ledge there, uh, who knew Jerry as a Boy Scout leader, was inspired by the news of the tragedy to take up climbing, and eventually completed the first ascent of Mount Cleveland's North Face in 1976 with Steve Jackson and Jerry's older brother, Jim Kanzler. Uh, the loss of the Wool Sox Club inspired a group of self-described degenerate climbers to form a new organization in 1971 called the Dirty Sox Club. The Dirty Sox Club uh, was equal parts climbing club and drinking club. Uh, members would convene at a cabin in the Humbug Spires to drink and climb, or at a member's home in Bozeman or Butte to drink and talk about climbing. A few of the club's uh, meetings ended in arrests, and at least one incident involving dynamite has been attributed to the club, uh, detonating a, a bridge into the Humbugs to try and keep the hunters out. Um, uh, all members themselves will caution you not to take any of their stories too literally, uh, and no one will own up to who had access to the dynamite, but I know a couple of the members were Forest Service employees at the time. Um, uh, yeah, so 1971, also the beginning, uh, first year of ice climbing as we know it, as new crampons, alpine hammers, and ice axe designs, which these are not what we currently use, these things terrify me, but uh, uh, we're allowed climbers to gain purchase on frozen waterfalls. Pat Callis and Gray Thompson were two of the earliest adopters of these new tools, setting out to find frozen water to climb. Along them were Dirty Socks Club members, along with them were Dirty Socks Club members Brian Leo, Jim Kanzler, and David Vaughn. Those climbers, joined by Chad Chadwick of Billings, met in the Beartooth Mountains to test out new gear and techniques in this little winter of 71-72, the results of which Pat Callis wrote up for the American Alpine Journal. Callis uh, and fellow chemistry professor Dr. Coughlin soon discovered that the, the walls of Highlight Canyon south of Bozeman were littered with climbable ice falls and set about climbing them, making Highlight one of the primary destinations for ice climbing in North America. Uh, during those years of climbing innovation, the remaining massive unclimbed walls in the world were gaining attention of the world's best climbers. Yet, Montana's biggest walls remained relatively unknown. This started to change when Fred Becky, perhaps the most accomplished alpine climber to ever live, began to explore the Beartooth and Bitterroot Ranges with Thompson, Callis, and others. Fearing a flood of outside climbers, Pat Callis discouraged the younger climbers from writing about climbing in Montana until they had a chance to set, secure a few of the first, uh, the remaining big first ascents. Most notably, uh, this wall here, this is at East Rosebud, this is the doublet. Um, he, Callis joked in a recent interview that he never meant for his jealousy to inspire a 50-year policy. Um, in 1972, Great Thompson, Pat Callis, and Hank Abrams climbed the doublet uh, along this line number six here. Um, on the right side there. And uh, it's a granite wall about the size of Yosemite's half dome in the first grade six climb. That's a climb that takes several uh, days, or sorry, overnight climb of several thousand feet. Um, first grade six climb in Montana. Uh, Gray recounted to me that Pat seemed capable of making himself lighter at will, and that when Callis fixed the rope at the top of the A4 crux pitch, nearly every piece of gear came rattling out of the wall. Um, while Pat jokes that the secrecy was to keep Becky and others from snagging first ascents, Gray claims that its purpose was always to prevent the sort of crowding that was starting to happen in Yosemite. Throughout the 1970s, the Dirty Socks Club expanded and continued to do big climbs without telling anyone. Um, here are some photos of uh, North Trapper Peak shared by club member Kirk Krieger. Um, this was likely the second ascent of the north face of North Trapper in 1980. Um, he was stationed in, uh, uh, in Missoula for a timber inventory at the time. There's Kurt leading out there. Um, Kurt and Gray still climb together in Missoula. I see them almost every week. Um, all right, the wilderness question. 
But in Missoula, among a small cohort of climbers who had little contact with the Dirty Socks Club, there developed a similar ethic, maybe even more intensely so. One month Missoula climber that I spoke to insists that not publishing climbing routes was about preserving the wilderness. Less information means fewer climbers, and thus fewer disruptions to plants and wildlife. But for climbers like Keith Schultz, um, I don't have the picture of Keith here, but these are pictures he sent me. Um, wilderness is more than forests and mountains. Wilderness is the experience of the unknown. Keith grew up in Missoula and started climbing in high school in the late 1970s. Um, he and his friends were heavily influenced by Royal Robbins' essays on clean climbing, which is a style of climbing that uses only removable gear and emphasizes doing minimal damage to the rock. Um, uh, Schultz and his cohort believe that just as old growth forests are destroyed by clear cuts, the wilderness experience is destroyed by writing guidebooks. Like old growth forests, unclimbed mountains are a scarce resource. Obscuring one's activities and leaving as little as trace as possible allows the second, third, or even thirtieth party to climb a route to have the same experience as the first, in theory. If routes are meticulously cleaned, made safer with modern fixed anchors, and extensively documented, then the modern climber is deprived of the wilderness experience and that, that the first ascent party was able to have. The guesswork, the possibility of failure, the necessity of reading the land and are precisely what allow climbers to commune with wilderness and what is threatened by detailed route descriptions. In my interview with Schultz, he went so far as to say that, the encountering, that encountering any trace that someone had been there before, especially a bolted anchor, would destroy his wilderness experience. Contrast that view with Pat Caffrey, not to be confused with Pat Callis, different Pat, um, in his Climber's Guide to Montana, published in 1985, he says, quote, there's beauty out there, and it's not always untouched by the hand of man. And he goes on to tell the story of uh, getting woken up in the Tobacco Root Mountains by a B-52 flying overhead, and asks his readers, who are all going to be climbers thinking similar things, was my wilderness experience shattered? Right? You know, is it that fragile that you can't, uh, that it doesn't survive even a single contact with the modern world? Um, by the mid-1980s, then, with the publishing of books, those books, uh, this is a Horsehead Arch in Blodgy Canyon, which some geologists say it just needs a good earthquake to come down. Uh, Keith says he climbed it without a rope when he was in high school. Um, of course, there's no evidence of these things because he didn't write them at the time, and you don't leave anything behind when you climb something without a rope. Um, but, uh, so here's some guidebooks. So we're getting to the guidebook era starting in the 80s. In, uh, so by the mid-1980s, it would seem that the Do Not Publish ethic had been abandoned as Pat Caffrey's Climber's Guide, published in 1985, followed by Bill Dawkins' Bozeman Rock Climbs in 1987. Dawkins included a history of Bozeman climbing that reluctantly acknowledged the Dirty Socks Club and their contribution, despite the fact that they never invited him to join. And yet, even uh, as books are published, they were shaped by the years of secrecy. Caffrey spends a significant portion of the introduction to his Climber's Guide talking up the book's limitations, stating, quote, this book will not attempt to lead you by the hand from vehicle to summit, nor will it describe every little fantastic revelation you are likely to discover, every pretty thing, every wrong turn, every particular hazard. It should whet your appetite, then take you to the point where the unknown and unspeakable begins. Caffrey goes on to write that Montana publishing ethic is not do not publish, but carefully consider materials submitted for publication. He specifies that extensive decimal ratings, dotted line diagrams, cosmic route names, and other such yosemitization are not really appropriate for Montana, and then sticks to that principle in what a lot of climbers have found to be a very unhelpful guidebook. <laughs> more, more a list of peaks in Montana than anything. Um, in the 1990s, uh, climbing guidebooks with recognizable topos, route names, decimal ratings uh, started to appear. Um, sport climbing uh, is really, and competition climbing also started to appear globally, so this is real change in the culture here. For those who might not know what sport climbing is, I wrote a decent description here, I think. Um, 
Sport climbing uh, refers to a style of bolt-protected climbing, which generally tends to be closer to the road and emphasizes athletic achievement over exploration or risk. Sport, climbers, uh, sport climbs are typically established top-down on cliffs of around 100 feet or less. Uh, while some old-school climbers, like Terry Kennedy and Keith Schultz, thought that this trend betrayed the spirit of real climbing, others, like Gray Thompson, Craig Zaspel, and Ron Brunkhorst, have embraced, or embraced it immediately. Um, with the changing style of climbing came a new style of guidebook. In 1996, uh, the late Dwight Bishop, um, following his death, what, sorry, uh, I skipped a line. The late Dwight Bishop published the first edition of Butte's Climbing Guide, uh, which his friends reissued in 2005 following his death from a fall in the Grand Teton. Even though the Butte Guide is more detailed, Kurt Krieger, who helped Dwight create the guidebook, insists that uh, they were careful not to include too much information, leaving plenty of room for mystery. Ron Brunkhorst uh, published um, a series of books including Big Sky Ice in 1991 and the Select Alpine Climbs of Montana in 1998, which revealed to the outside world many of the bold climbs in the Beartooth, Absaroka, and Crazy Mountains that had never been published before. Um, Brunkhorst, who grew up in White Sulphur Springs and now lives in Livingston, put in extensive work drilling bolts in the limestone walls of Indian Creek near Townsend and grasshopper spires in the Castle Mountains and dozens of other limestone outcrops around central Montana. He's known for his long alpine ascents on questionable rock, as well as his gymnastic climbs on shorter, steeper walls, and for putting in the time to develop easier routes and to mentor new climbers. His most popular book remains the Central Montana Cragging Guide, called Big Empty. Uh, in the latest edition of his select climbs, however, the uh, Dirty Socks Club member, UM Western math professor Craig Zaspel, Dr. Z, uh, wrote a foreword that placed the ethics of obscurity firmly in the past writing that in the 1970s, quote, it was understood that climbs and route descriptions would be passed between local climbers by word of mouth. This was done out of fear that large numbers of out-of-state climbers would come in and take the many first ascents in southwest Montana. He concludes with the defense of climbing guidebooks that has only become more relevant uh, with time. This will be the sort of concluding point, but that if federal agencies have access to some type of historical record of climbing, it might be more possible to minimize the effects of mining and logging on that climbing. An example which was likely on Zaspel's mind in 2008 when he wrote that forward was the quarry project at Lost Horse Canyon in the Bitterroot Mountains. Lost Horse is a popular bouldering and traditional climbing area that in 2007, Bitterroot Forest Service uh, allowed for the expansion of a rock quarry uh, that threatened the main climbing wall at Lost Horse. Quickly, an effort was put together by Bitterroot Climbing Coalition member Joe Josephson to document the climbs, publish a guidebook, and organize a climbing festival. Uh, the resulting book is one of the best guidebooks to ever come out of Montana, and one uh, which the climbing community has generally loved. However, the sales of the book uh, were not enough to merit a second printing, and copies are now hard to come across. I think this is an extremely important, important point for understanding this persistence of the lack of information, is that the market for these books is so small it's hard to keep them around. Um, so the challenges associated with publishing guidebooks is nearly made irrelevant in the 2000s, with the advent of blogs and websites like Supertopo. Um, climbers like Chris Gibbish and Levi Parchin of Missoula had their own blogs where they would post updates about new routes they were working on. And despite the immediacy of the internet, though, this new medium continued to uphold this sort of gentleman's agreement of obscuring your climbs. Levi, who established many of the bouldering and sport climbs at Lolo Pass, only ever posted cryptic information that would be completely useless to a reader hoping to repeat any of his climbs. Even still in 2008, when Chris Gibbish posted photos from a bouldering session with Levi, he received this threatening comment, which you can see there, it reads, nice blog, cool to see that when a buddy shows you his secret spot, it shows up in a blog a couple of days later. This is the reason I cautioned Levi against taking people like you up there. Again, the, the post has no information on how to get there, just some pictures of the boulders. Um, 
Merely informing the outside world that there were rocks to climb at Lolo Pass without providing any directions to find them was seen as a breach of trust. When Levi shut down his blog in 2012, he posted the following message. Quote, if I come off like kind of an overprotective asshole about things, it's because I am. I am not ready to share my secrets. Some climbers just want to be friends with everyone and share all the climbing. This attitude is just fine, but not my cup of tea. That said, Levi is now helping two younger climbers write a guidebook to Lolo Pass. Um, in uh, recent years, new access issues have brought about a return to the days of secret crags only shared among friends. In western Montana, there are two primary forces that have impacted access to rock climbing crags, and that is changes in private property ownership and conflicts with the U.S. Forest Service. I believe that the new fences and the no trespassing signs that are coming up are a product of the changes in land tenure that have been taking place in the last 30 years. Um, UM forestry professors Lori Young, Wayne Fryman, and Jill Belsky conducted a study in 2003 that found that the sale of ranch lands and forest lands has caused a major shift in the understanding of private property and public right-of-ways in rural communities across Montana. Property is often sold to new owners from outside the area who do not have the same understanding of local usage as the previous owners. These new owners tend to be more hostile to hunters, hikers, and climbers in their, on their property and shut down access. As has happened to Kootenai Canyon and the Bitterroot and Mulkey Gulch and the Garnet Range. Um, in addition to changes in land ownership, climbing itself has changed. Whereas climbers once were brought into the sport by a mentor, today most climbers start out in a gym. For the minority of gym climbers who make the leap to outdoor climbing, many of those who do will only do so with the guidance that can be found online. Um, some older climbers recognized that problem and made a concerted effort to establish safe and accessible sport climbing areas with climbs of all grades. Michael Lee Moore of Missoula led the way in that effort, establishing the Tick Farm area at Mill Creek. Uh, the new climbing destination was met with intense backlash, however. Environmentalists were disturbed by the impact climbing would have on the mountain sheep and nesting falcons. Old school climbers were irked by the new style of routes. Nearby landowners were annoyed at the college students frequenting their backyard areas on the weekends. And in 2014, anchors were vandalized and trails destroyed to the crag, prompting the Forest Service to step in. While it seemed like the issue would be resolved quickly and peacefully, in 2020, a new district ranger announced a ban on any new climbing anchors anywhere in the Bitterroot National Forest, and that the creation and announced that they were going to work on the creation of a new climbing management plan. This is still underway. The Bitterroot plan is still, is still ongoing, um, quite heated. Uh, the Access Fund has warned that whatever happens in the Bitterroot could become the roadmap for regulating climbing throughout the country. Increasing populations and changing styles of climbing development have transformed what were once interpersonal conflicts between climbers and landowners into a highly public conflict with national implications. As the Forest Service continues to hold hearings on a climbing management plan, some individuals have taken their sport back underground. One of the subjects I've interviewed has gone so far as to post misleading information online leading to cliffs that do not exist. Um, <laughs> the same guy who th think is responsible for the dynamite. Um, new, <laughs> uh, new routes have established since, been established since the ban, but unless you know the developers firsthand, good luck ever finding them. The do not publish ethic, however anachronistic it may be in the era of the internet, continues to have a noticeable impact on how Montanans uh, experience the mountains.